joined today by the recent British Open runner-up, Gary Wilson. Gary, thanks very much for joining us. Cheers, I think it's a pleasure to do it. Believe it or not, Gary, the first time I did an interview with you was 17 years ago, and it was the World Under-21 Championship, and there was a very strong field. Judd Trump, Mark Allen, Michael Weiss, Liang Wenbo, a couple of good players from India in there as well, but you won it. Yeah, um, good memories. Uh, Obviously, it was... It was um, not the way I got on the tour. I'd already got my tour card from the Challenge Tour before that. Um, but it was sort of like, kind of like a free stab at being in a competition of that kind of profile. Because I'd never, I'd never really been in anything as big as that. I'd never been to a world amateur. I'd never been to a sort of the latter stages of the English amateur by that stage or anything. Or the, the English Open they used to have then. Um, so the World Under-21s for me was like a massive tournament. Um, I'd won a couple of English Under-18 titles to to get there, I think. And as I say, I'd, I'd already secured my place on the tour for the first time. Um, so I treat that tournament as like something I really, really wanted to win before turning professional. And um, yeah, managed to do it. Uh, and yeah, just good, good memories of it, yeah. The thing I remember about that tournament was there were loads of players in it who were great long potters, who could score very heavily. You could do all that too. But the difference, I thought, between you and a lot of the other players, you already seemed to have a more developed all-round game. Would that be fair to say? Yeah, I, I've said this to a few people before. Like, Obviously, generally the thing is with a lot of young players coming through, you tend to find that they're all good, great potters and you know can score to an extent, but a little bit clueless if we're being you know blunt about it. And they don't really know how to play the tactical side of the game. I would say I was quite different to that. I was quite the opposite when I was growing up playing. I had it instilled in me um, from not only myself, but me, me old coach, Stan Chambers, um, where from like 9, 10, 11, 12 years old, I was always like very mentally aware of how to play the game properly. I was always very safety-minded. I might, I might make a 30, 40, 50 break, but if I ran out of position at all at any stage, I would keep things tight. I would put colours safe. I, I kind of knew that side of the game quite early on. And the thing that I struggled with until I was about 13, I would say, was actually the scoring side. I could pop balls. I had good natural ability, but just couldn't put the breaks together, you know, and I, I would always get through in games just on my tactical sort of awareness. People used to say I had an, an old head on young shoulders. And, um, yeah, but when I was sort of 12, 13, 14... I really started ramping the scoring side of my game up as well. Um, and that's when I felt like, yeah, as you say, I, I was a bit more of an all-round player already at quite a young age. It was just, there's players probably coming through um, probably nowadays who are, I would say, not as all-round, but they've got a lot of power to the game. I was still developing the power side a little bit. I was scoring heavy, but I probably wasn't as dangerous as what I'd like to think I probably am now compared to then. Um I just had a good all-round game, as you say. Do you remember the name of the lad you beat in the final? Yeah, yeah, Cobkit Palagin. Palagin, yeah, yeah from yeah. Thailand. And yeah. It's surprising, actually, because he was a very good player as well. You'd actually played him already in the group stage, but he never really uh, made it any further. But you were already quite experienced at that stage because you had played a lot of top players even as a kid in exhibitions and things like that. Kind of, yeah. I wouldn't say as experienced as what a lot of people were. Up in the northeast. we didn't really have a lot of players to play. Um I'd had experience in in the fact that I'd, I'd I'd I was used to winning tournaments like at the junior level at least and pro am levels up in up my way and maybe the odd ones in Leeds and sort of Preston and Leicester sometimes I was used to winning um, from an early age but I didn't really have a lot of practice partners to play um, it wasn't like I had like loads of players to play like the years now uh, so. Yeah, as I say, it was just it was just me all round game really that kind of kind of stood us in good stead and. 
as I say, the scoring developed more and more as I was coming through my teens. So, yeah, I just felt I was um, I was ready for the main tour when I got on there. The other Wilson, Kyron, was on here recently, and he said his first memory of watching snooker wasn't actually a match. It was the old TV show, Big Break, yeah. which was hugely popular back in the day. There was a junior version of that, and you were involved in that a few times. Great exposure, playing on the BBC, even in a sort of fun game show environment at such a young age. Yeah, so as you say, like uh, just your previous point there, I may not have had players to play against in that sense and sort of practice against a lot of great players, but I did have that experience of being on TV from an early age. I got on big break when I was nine years old. Wow. So obviously it was a great experience to just, I mean, it, a lot of it's all a blur. I don't really remember a lot of it, but again, Stan Chambers kind of influenced that decision a bit. I think he knew people in the BBC and he managed, you know, he was saying, look, I've got this young lad. He's a great little player. We need him on this junior version of the show, you know, and he pushed for it really and got us on there. And I'm so glad he did because it led to another couple of occasions, like you say, going on when I was um, 11 and 12, I think. So it was great. I would love to see something like that come back again. It would be brilliant. Do you have any tapes of it? I do. Um, I got the, the VHS of it, yeah. On All three, actually. I've got them somewhere in the loft, I think. Um, so I think, actually, in the last few years, Michael Holt was after copies, and I think he's actually put them on a DVD for us. I think he'd done that a few years ago, actually, so I might have a DVD of them all now. Somewhere, okay. so yeah, I've got them to keep anyway. Yeah, and anyone listening under the age of 18 can go and ask their parents now what a VHS was exactly. Yeah. yeah, they wouldn't be familiar with them. So, your early years on tour, then what were they like? Um, not good. Like, if I looking back, the first thing I think when you ask that question there is just disappointment, you know. Um, obviously, I had ex- expectations of myself when I got on, not to just go blow the world away, but I thought, you know, we didn't get two years then, we got mm. one year. Um, and I just thought, you know, just try and try and get get a good few matches under your belt early on. Try and get to the TV stages of events, get that experience, get 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 the sort of deep end of tournaments where you can get that experience quickly. I expected that of myself in a way, you know. I felt I was good enough, but yeah, I struggled. I struggled a lot to be honest. Um, playing conditions a little bit, they were far different to what I was ever used to practicing on. So I didn't sort of realise or acknowledge it much at the time. But looking back, I think I know now how much them playing conditions do make a difference on how you actually perform in your matches. You you don't get many chances as it is against top players. And when you're used to practising on what's basically like a, a good club table and coming to play on the proper tournament tables all the time, it's just so different. Um, I struggled with adapting straight away. I was a slow starter. I'd maybe be one or two frames down before I even knew what was going on. Um, my first match on tour I was against Mark Selby um, I nice remember, easy I remember, start yeah I remember playing him in the, it was the Grand Prix um, and I lost 5-4 I remember missing a red to the green pocket just rattled and stayed over the jaws and that was in the decider and he went on to win and obviously it's a little bit of a kick in the teeth your first game if I'd have won that I might have kicked on a little bit more who knows but uh, I won, a, I won a fair few games it was the sort of tiered system back then so I won a, quite, a, quite a few games Always would sort of win first, second, possibly third rounds in a few tournaments and then kept coming short in the second, last or last round before the venue, you know, all the time in the first season. So disappointing, but managed to stay on, I think, through the one-year list. I was I maybe finished around 70th, somewhere around there, and managed to stay on for another year. And the second year was even worse, to be honest. Although I managed to get through the Grand Prix, they changed the format in the, for the start of that season and you only had to win one game to get to the, the venue. And I'd never been to a venue before, so I, I think I beat Mark Davis 5-3, the first tournament of that season. 
and got through to play Steve Davis um, at, at Preston. And that was just a whole new thing for me, like going to a proper venue. I was treating it as if it was like obviously a proper tournament now and first time ever I'd ever done that. I was only 19 at the time, I think. Um, and yeah, it just just looking back on it, it was it was all new to us. I had, I had a couple of my mates come down to watch us in the crowd. Never had anything like that before, really. Not it, not in a proper match, you know, like in exhibitions and things and stuff like that. I've had all that, but this was to me. I was treating it. I think I was almost putting too much pressure on myself. I was treating it so much like I've got to win. I just couldn't perform. I was. I felt sort of stiff. I felt stuck on my shots. I, I felt like I've, I'm under so much sort of pressure on myself to win. I couldn't just sort of take in what was happening and just play um, so yeah disappointing and then for the rest of the season again just won a few games here and there didn't really do anything and fell off by I think one match at the end actually yeah the biggest memory that second season was losing in the world championship qualifiers to a lad called James Tatton and I remember at 8 each first to 10 he fluked frame ball in each of the last two frames to beat his 10-8. And the That's whole, the sort of memory that stays with you yeah, a long time, isn't it? that one stayed with us. I mean, the whole game was shocking, to be honest. From my point of view, at least, it was absolutely shocking. I was just hanging on, hanging on, struggling, hanging on. And then for that to happen as well, just to put the icing on the cake, mm-hmm. it was uh, it was a bit demoralising. Obviously, I knew I was off the tour then, and you couldn't get straight back on in them mm-hmm. days. You couldn't just come to Q school or whatever and get straight back on for the following season you knew you had a year out then yeah you had a year in the wilderness just wondering if you were going to what you were going to play and if you were going to play and how you were going to get back on again you know so I was yeah that demoralised us I think it was about 21 at that time and I was already demoralised from mm. snooker so at such a young age relatively speaking my head was already in the bin. <laughs> so you ended up being off the tour for seven years. Yeah. And usually when players come back on, not always, but usually they do it within a year or two. So it's a very long time to be out of the game. Was there ever a part of that time, Gary, where you'd almost given up on the idea of ever getting back? Or was, was it always there as your goal? It was always there as my goal. Um, I always felt deep down in my gut that I was good enough to do something in snooker because... I'd proved it to myself and other people in various aspects of playing in different tournaments locally or or whatever, you know, you you just know deep down as a player whether you're good enough or not, or you should do by that stage. And I knew deep down I was good enough to do something, at least make a living out of snooker. But at the same time there was there was a handful of occasions where I seriously, seriously doubted whether I was cut out for not cut out for doing it, but whether the, whether the opportunity was there, because the game wasn't in a good state at that time neither. So 2006, 2000, 2005, 2006, 2007, that sort of time, it was probably in its worst state. And we only had six events when the two years I played on. And then a couple of years after, it was still in a pretty bad way. And there was maybe, I think they had the old Pios events, the Pontins International Open Series events. That, that came in and you had like maybe... I can't remember, was it six or eight events of them you had to play in? But there was a long break between each tournament and I would turn up and maybe lose second, third round in one of them, not get very far. Tables were shocking. They'd been, the cloths weren't brand... It wasn't like we play on the tour where the tables are brand new, the balls are brand new. It was like sort of playing on a table that was maybe a month or two old cloth or something and drifting everywhere and heavy and it just didn't suit me at all. And I, I battled my way as much as I could through it, but it just... I kind of thought, you know, sooner or later I'm going to get back on. I knew deep down I was good enough, but it just wasn't happening for us. And then one year went by, another year went by, and all of a sudden I'm, I've got no money, I can't pay for anything. So you end up driving a I taxi? Up, well, I'd done a few things before that. I was already working 
even when I first turned pro, because the money was so bad and there was there was not many tournaments, I was already working behind the bar in the village hotel, doing the functions, like the weddings and things. But that was like a zero-hour contract, so I could just work as and when I needed to do around the snooker as well, which was handy. But then that progressed into working in my own local pub, working in a factory that my mum worked at in Findus. Um, so I'd already had jobs at this stage. The snooker just wasn't good enough yet to sort of be top 32. But at that point, to be making a, a decent living, you know. So obviously I wasn't even on the tour now. And I'm thinking, well, what am I doing? I'm only picking up a few hundred quid here and there from pro-arms when I can. I'm going to every pro-arm possible. I'm going Carlisle, I'm going Leeds, I'm going everywhere every Sunday just to try and pick up some money. Um, as well as obviously working and yeah then the taxi driving and um, I think by the time I was doing the taxiing for a couple of years I probably thought at that stage I was I was almost like half comfortable by then I was thinking you know I've got a full-time job now where I'm kind of not happy with it but it's easy enough I'm working for myself I can do my own hours I can live my life the way I need to live my life I'm still only mid-20s you know so obviously I'm wanting to go out with my mates and stuff as well I missed a little bit of that when you're younger as you do focusing on the snooker and stuff and I think I was just content so I'd done this taxiing for quite a while and then um, thought yeah if the snooker works out it works out if it doesn't well so be it well it did because he got back onto the tour and I wonder what it would have been like Gary if when you're doing a shift at a frozen food factory someone taps you on the shoulder and says in a few years time you're going to be playing Ding Junhui in front of a massive TV audience in the semi-finals of the China Open in Beijing you probably would have thought that just seems Hard to imagine at the moment, but it did happen, and you beat him. Yeah, de- definitely at that time. As I say, maybe sort of 25, 26, I would have been thinking, nah, like, I kind of thought, I had, I've had a stint on the tour, and to get back on, it would be one thing, but to then progress quite quickly, I would have thought, oh, man, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to need another three or four years just to try and get to that sort of level, but... Things changed. Barry Hearn came into the game. As I was starting to get back on the tour again, things were much better. There was a lot more tournaments and everything just sort of kind of fell into place a little bit and I wished that that was the way the tour was when I first got on because I believe I would have found my feet a bit better instead of playing half a dozen tournaments and thinking I've not even had a season there. I've maybe played about 10, 11 matches and that's the end of the season. (laughs) Whereas now you're playing matches upon matches upon matches and it's just not as big a deal which is a good thing because you can just relax a bit more and play your game and there's money to be made as well. So, yeah, I just wish it was like that the first time round. Well, talk to me about that match against Ding because it went to the last frame. You got through. Huge experience for you as much as anything else because Ding is such a superstar over there. But you got the better of him that day. Yeah, um, I came into the tournament not with a lot of confidence. Um, I'd found a little something, and this is going to sound silly to some people but snooker players will know what I'm talking about it was in the Welsh Open before that I'd um, I just tinkered with something I'd turned my cue around the way I was playing um, a lot of players play with like the, the flat of the cue mm-hmm. like facing upwards so you can see the arrows on your cue and I never did I'd never been a player who'd done that I'd always had it the other way around I've, I've never heard of any player doing it the other way around that's yeah, interesting that you there's did actually that quite, there's a few that actually play with it to the right. side um, there's a few Judd actually used to play with it to the side and he changed and you started using it flat up and um, I'd always been one flat down kind of thing and I had my fingers on the flat and just fancy changing something and I was in the club with Elliot and Elliot Slicer yeah, yeah and I just says right I'm just gonna I'm gonna change I'm gonna I'm gonna put the flat up and I'm just gonna change I says surely it's got to be something slightly better and my logic to that was surely if I've got the flat up the only part I'm holding is the round part of the queue at the bottom 
So that's never changing. That's never going to be any different. It's always going to be the consistent part of the queue that you're going to be holding. It can't feel any different. Mm. So I just went with that, and I thought, plus I can see the arrows on my queue. I had a lovely Paris queue, and it was it looked nice. So I thought, yeah, we'll just change it. Nothing else is working, so we'll do that, and we'll see what happens. Three days later, I got to the quarters of the Welsh Open. I'd beat Neil Robertson in the last 16. And what players might not realise, or people, sorry, listening might not realise, is when you do something like that, it actually changes the way your queue plays a little bit as well. So I had to get used to that over a couple of days. And I took that confidence from the Welsh Open into China. Again, didn't have loads of confidence, but played decent. And as I was going through that tournament, I actually got a bit more confident, a bit more confident. I was scoring heavier, was playing decent, to the point where all of a sudden I'm in the semi-finals playing ding. Massive occasion, like massive capacity crowd, obviously there watching ding and myself. And that for me was like the biggest point in my career so far where I was thinking, wow, this is like a proper arena, proper match. I'm in the Far East, yeah, like playing ding in his home crowd. And I just treated, I didn't have any sort of nerves in a way. I just treated like I was playing comfortably. I was playing fine. I was playing well. Take your chances and see what happens. It's kind of like a a bit of a free roll. I'm in the semis already. Come on, let's just get to the final. And took me chance well in the decider. And then you were in the final. And you played Mark Selby, who was just about to go to the Crucible to defend the world title a few weeks later. Mark started well in that match, got better as it went on and won quite comfortably in the end. But I know what you're like, Gary. I, I know you, you tend to be quite critical of yourself. So even with a 10-2 margin, mm. did you look back at it and think there was something more you could have done? Oh, massively. I let myself down in that final. Um, obviously, I tried my best, but it, it all fell apart in that final, to be honest. Mark did play well, to be fair to him, but them first four frames were big. I was in the game and then first four frames he wasn't really there at the races and I had chances and he was 3-0 up before I knew it and I'd had a few chances as well and I'd missed a few easy ones and I really I should have been at least two each possibly 3-1 up after them first four frames and I was 3-1 down um, managed to get a 90 break I think to go 3-1 but I thought alright well I can kick on now I've, I've made a break there I'm, I'm, I'm in the game he stepped up a bit after them first four frames though and I didn't step up a gear at all and he just started slowly pulling away and once he got a big enough lead like sort of four or five frame gap he does what a lot of great players do and he, he just he just felt so much more comfortable you could see and the breaks just started flowing and I was just sitting there as a spectator to be honest for the rest of it managed a little flurry of 100 break towards the end but yeah yeah I gave him too much early on and he, he pounced on that like great champions do and I got annihilated to be honest but you did beat him in a very big match a few years later, and we'll talk about that and much more in just a moment. One shot, one moment can be the difference. Between victory and failure, ecstasy and despair. To be a champion is to be ready when that moment comes. Kazoo UK Championship Snooker at the York Barbican starts from the 23rd of November. Book now at wst.tv forward slash tickets. Four years later, you play Mark Selby again at the Crucible. This is a very different situation, of course. It's the biggest tournament of the year. It's the last 16 and you beat him by 13 frames to 10. An absolutely massive landmark moment in your career. What do you remember about it, Gary? I remember, obviously, I'd beat Luca the round before, and that was a big hurdle just to 
get through in the in at the Crucible. I, that was my second time there, and the last thing I wanted to do was get there and not win again. I really, really was desperate to get through around and experience the best of twenty fives, three sessions, the proper you know kind of scenario you you always look at on the TV for years and years and years. And um, I remember feeling probably eighty, ninety percent comfortable with my game at that point. So I was going into that game again, like as a player, when you feel quite comfortable in how you're playing, a lot of the pressures that you can take into the game that you would have normally when you're not feeling so good just weren't there. I, would just, I just felt comfortable, I just wanted to play, and I thought if I play, concentrate, and I do the best I can, it's not going to go badly this. It, I might lose, but it's not going to go badly. I, I can come off with my head held high and just say, gave it my best. Maybe I lost 13-10, 13-9, whatever it might be. But I'll, I'll give it my best and I'll feel pretty comfortable by the end of it. And that just relieves quite a bit of an anxiety you've got anyway going into games. So feeling like that, yeah, I just proceeded with the game and actually scored quite heavy. I think I had, I can't remember, but the, I think Mark said the match sheet, maybe most of the frames I won, I had a break above 60, you know, so quite quite heavy scoring. And uh, obviously felt a little bit nervous in the last frame when he's gave us a chance and to win 13-10. But I loved it. At that point, it was um, the curtain had went up as well, and it was my first time experience. I think I think it was my first time experience in any way the the setup where obviously you've one got, the whole, off arena, and you've got yeah. the whole arena, yeah. And I, I I loved that even more, and that even gave us a little bit more of an inspiration because going to the Crucible the first time a few years ago, you, you just want to feel comfortable. Some players hate it, and some players love it. I felt comfortable. And then the next step for me was winning a game, which I did. And then the next step was right experience in that full arena when the curtain goes up. And every time I, something new happened, I loved it even more, which to me was just so nice a feeling because I knew I belonged there. I knew I belonged playing there and I felt comfortable. So that spurred us on even more, as I say. And I, I just held myself together to take that chance um, and was obviously absolutely delighted to win. Uh, obviously beating Mark Selby, he's, he's always a really, really tough opponent to, to beat in any at any time, so yeah, I was just delighted with the win. He doesn't care. He has just produced the finest performance of his life and the greatest result of his career. And Mark Selby, the three times Crucible King, has gone. Gary Wilson has won by 13 frames to 10. The one thing better than playing in the Crucible, having the whole arena to yourself, with two tables there and the other one play finished yeah. is when you're doing it when there's just one table out in the centre and by beating Ali Carter in the quarterfinals you gave yourself the chance to do that against Judd Trump 17 frames to 11 that semi-final finished but for most of the match it was nip and tuck and you were staying with them yeah it was it was a little bit disappointing I said I, I said in my interview afterwards in that game and obviously I'm raw from just losing and being very disappointed because that's just my nature. I don't care what round it is, where it is, I want to win, you know. And uh, I was a little bit raw and I felt that the table was playing a little bit heavy for the semi-finals. The table for the first round, second round and quarter-finals was beautiful, I thought. Um, both, because I'd actually had a, had a shot on both when we got taken off against Luca. Um, but for some reason in the semi-finals it was just playing that little bit heavy and a little bit drifty as well. And Judd and John had actually said the same thing, so I knew it wasn't just me, and I think David even as well. Um, so I think John said after his match they can take that table away and burn it now. Yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, just, just I was a little bit disappointed, and it, it's no excuse because if I was playing well enough, you know, I was saying I was like 80, 90 percent comfortable with my game. If I was ninety five, one hundred percent comfortable, 
that that wouldn't have came into the equation. There was shots that I was struggling with that I wouldn't normally struggle with if I was feeling really good. And it was them shots that were coming up quite quite often in that game against Judd. And I just I just wasn't playing as well as I was earlier. Um, Judd wasn't playing that great to start with neither. So I was I was getting ahead and I was then I was sticking with him. He was going ahead again and I was just sticking with him and hanging on and sticking with him and hanging on, but not really feeling like I was playing good yet. I was waiting for us to step up a gear and I, st- I still hung on to sort of 9-7 um, and then it slowly started slipping away. My standard wasn't improving when I knew it had to and his standard was slowly starting to get better and better and that was the story of the match to be honest and once he got the 14-10 lead at the end of that session going into the last session I knew it was going to be uphill struggle. I still had every faith that if I play well I've got a chance of winning this but yeah, my standard throughout the whole match just didn't improve. And uh, as I say, his did. That's, what again, what champions do as well. So I just need to, um, well, I needed to reflect on that. And, you know, at the end of the day, the reflection was I just wasn't playing well enough. There was nothing about nerves or the experience or anything that I felt was the problem. The one table set up, like the occasion, none of that. I, I was just playing another snooker match in my head and it felt I felt I felt quite good in that sense. It was just I wasn't playing well enough. I wasn't happy with how I was playing in general. So I had to look back on that and try and improve. I remember being in the press conference when the match was over and I remember thinking this is a bit of a shame really because you didn't actually seem all that happy with what you had accomplished. You seemed to be downbeat about the whole thing. And Was that something just in the spur of the moment? And later when you look back, you thought, actually, that was a really good tournament for me. Uh, kind of. I mean, obviously, you do look back on it and go, wow, like, obviously, that was a great run. You'd take that all day long at the start of the tournament, especially if I've never been that far before. But at the same time, I'm a natural competitor. I mean, like I say, when I was younger, I'm used to winning. Obviously, not so much on the tour at all. I've never won a tournament, but there's chances come around where you can possibly win one and that's the biggest one of all and if I feel like I've not played as well as I can play then I'm sorry I'm going to be disappointed and if I, people don't understand that then that's that's their problem not mine you know I, also I, I do take the positives but as you say in the interviews I guess it can come across more negative than positive but I'm not going to sit there in the interview and start spieling off all the positives about me game when I've just lost. Mm. I'm going to be reflecting on why I've lost and why I've not played very well. And, and the important thing is to be honest in a situation like that I anyway, am. which a lot of people aren't in that situation, yeah. but you were saying what you felt, so That's all fair I am, enough. and that's all I try and do without being rude or abrupt too much. Or all I try and do is be honest with anyone in any interview, without, as I say, without being rude or saying anything I shouldn't. And uh, that's all I did. I, was, I, I said why I felt I wasn't playing great. I said why I lost and deserved to lose and obviously why I wasn't happy about it but yeah of course you look back on it and you go yeah it was a good run yeah obviously I'm really happy with that the money the, the prize the, the rankings the, the being able to play at the one table set up brilliant absolutely great memories of it not quite but that will be good enough Gary Wilson shakes his own and says I'm sure best of luck tomorrow he did all he could Neither player really reached the height of their ability, but that's what can happen in a semi-final. It gets harder with the way the tournament goes on. Gary Wilson leaves the arena, but if the judge Trump will be coming back tomorrow to try and rectify that defeat against John Higgins in 2011. He runs out what looks like a comfortable winner. Maybe it wasn't, but he's in the final. I've actually had a splashback made from your kitchen. Um, where it's there's a photo some someone did of us walking down in the first session down the steps 
just just as you're coming into the arena floor, they've got a photo of us. Um, it's like a black and white photo. It looks really cool. And I had decided to get that made into a splashback for my kitchen. So it's mm. obviously a great memory, which I'll always treasure, you know, and I hope I can get that far again someday um, in the next few years and, you know, obviously hopefully go further. And that's one of my ambitions, obviously, try and win world championships as well as just winning a tournament anyway. But, of course, I do look at the positives. People might not realise that. Um, obviously, I, I'm grateful for everything that I've got as well. But... Yeah, of course. Like a competitive player that I am, I'm going to be disappointed when I lose. And it wasn't just your kitchen you got done. You were getting work done on a house around that time, which just dragged on and on. And that became a real problem for you, and it affected your game for a, a lot of the yeah. subsequent period. Like, listen, like the last couple of years, in all honesty, has been a complete nightmare. <laughs> like ever since, ever since that run in the World Championships, we went on a couple of amazing holidays. Um, so I've really enjoyed myself. Went to America to see family. We've been to Hawaii. We've been to Singapore. We were all in one kind of trip as well. We've been around the world for three weeks, to be honest, me and, me and Rob and me missus. And we just had a great time. And then the start of the next season came about, and I struggled a bit. Um, won a few, struggled a bit, not too bad. And then obviously COVID started kicking in, and the house started kicking in as well it was around the end of 2019 where we would, we'd already done the plans and everything we were just ready to get on with the builders and long story short yeah as I say from the end of 2019 whether it be Covid or house all all rolled into one everything just started going pear-shaped massively <laughs> and it wasn't until I would say the turn of the new year this year where I started feeling a bit better um, and where I'd actually changed practice venue um, I actually I play full-time at Paul Rinaldi's North East Snooker Centre now, which I hadn't been before. I'd been swapping between my old club Gateshead and sometimes going to Paul's as well. So I'd, I'd changed a few things in my life. Things were settling down with the house a bit more. You know, all, all the major issues had gone. And I'd I'd sort of got into Paul's and got my own table set up and everything. The same as what Elliot's got. We've got our own table now. So everything was starting to fall into place a little bit more with the snooker. The house, as I say, was getting sorted a bit more and my head was getting a little bit clearer. Still felt a bit of depression and stuff because I, I had quite a bit of that for quite a few months. Would you go so far as to say, Gary, that in a medical sense it was actually full-on yeah, depression? 100%. Because I'm not the type of person to dwell on anything or, you know, milk anything or anything like that. You know, like I usually get on with stuff and not bothered by it by anything but I was going to say you seem very mentally tough yeah but it just shows that with everything that's gone on the last couple of years Gary yeah. everyone's vulnerable to this sort of thing even I was gone like and I, I didn't want to accept it that's how much I'm not like that I didn't want to accept that there was a something wrong but I knew I was I was different Robin even said I was different she's actually got a photo of us in one of our rooms that wasn't quite finished yet where I look honestly like six stone wet through me I've got like a skeleton face and I'm I'd lost weight even me like I'm like I'm yeah, like you'd a, struggle to lose weight, Gary. There's not much to start well, I'm, with. I'm built yeah. like a raffle ticket as it <laughs> yeah. is. So if I lose any weight, I'm struggling. But I was I was in a really bad place, and it, it took us a few weeks at least to accept that in my own head. Once I did accept it, though, I was I was perfectly happy to be open about it and just again just be honest and just say, look, I've been suffering. It's as simple as that. This has gone on. That's gone on. As I say, turn of the new year though, started practicing like eight ten hours a day going berserk just out of nowhere I don't know if it was just because I'd reset things in my head or what but all of a sudden I had a new table a little bit of a clearer mind and I went berserk practicing for two or three months which led into the world championships this year at least getting to the I'd have ter- worst season I've ever had on tour ever even including the first two that I'd ever had years ago 
but managed to salvage it slightly by getting to the crucible, which is just my massive aim after the, after the new year, you know. So I felt, you know, after the Worlds, I'm sort of back to being me again. It's been, it's been literally like a year and a half, two years of... It's, I'm, I haven't even been myself, really. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's only recently where I felt I'm sort of back to that kind of way of thinking again, which is great. And in a way, suffering can bring a reward, can't it? Because having gone through all that now, you probably feel great about life that you've put that behind you. Yeah, um, it's not fully behind us, but yeah, it's 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 not in my head anywhere near the way it was. I've got stuff in place now; everything's sorted, you know. So I can just move on and concentrate, as I say, on the snooker. And we've yeah, everything's fine. Like I say, long story short, everything's fine now, and there's nothing really affecting us in that way, like mentally or anything. Well, let's lighten the mood a little because in each of these interviews I throw in something we call the quickfire round where I just throw five subjects at you and you say anything that comes into your mind, just a bit of fun. It can be one word, one sentence, a couple of sentences, whatever you think. The best place you've been to in the world? Automatically Hawaii springs to mind. Yeah, Mm -hmm. as I say, went there for a holiday with me missus after the World Championships. And yeah, it was just, obviously it's just somewhere you'd dream to go to. Um, Great experience there. Really enjoyed it. Yeah. Whether it's really as cold as people think it is on Tyneside? Nah. Nah, it's not as cold as you'd think it is. Um, it is a few, it is definitely a few degrees colder than it is down south, but we've had a great summer this year for some reason. I don't know why, but global warming or whatever you want to call it, but it's still 19, 20 degrees sometimes back home at the minute. So nah, it's not freezing. <laughs> One match from your past you'd like to erase. Oh, there's quite a few. Um, <laughs> you only get one, Gary. When you say raise, can I just not qualify or, or not win? Whatever, or, whatever you think. One match you would prob- have... Probably the World Championship one against James Tatton. Yeah. Oh, right. Yeah, for yeah, obvious I'd, reasons, yeah. as we discussed. One thing you'd like to change about life on the circuit? Um, in fact, I'm going to give you another one first. I've just thought of another one. Fair the enough. World Amateur Final against Mohamed Azif. Oh, yeah. That was m- many years later. Yeah, 2013, 2012, yeah. 2013. I think, long was, a- yeah. I think it was 2012, so long after you'd won the under-20 Yeah, ones. that as well. So sorry, what was the next yeah. one? <laughs> no, that's fair enough. So you've got one pro game and one amateur game there, so it balances right. it out. Yeah. yeah, yeah. One thing you'd like to change about life on the circuit? Um, one thing I'd like to change... It's tough. There's quite a few things. I've actually got a list on my phone of little <laughs> things that niggle. So when anyone... Well, pick, pick one out. So when anyone... Oh, shall I get my phone out? Yeah, go look? on then. So whenever I get... Asked, I don't have to start remembering things. I think this is officially no longer the quick fire <laughs> round, but this is great stuff. This is great. The, you've the, picked you've some on. tough questions there, to be honest. <laughs> I mean, one thing out of potentially dozens, it's not going to be easy. I would probably say uh, the practice, the practice situation, because we've even come here this week and there's less players, and somehow people still can't get a practice. So yeah, the practicing situation. It's, Maybe it's, just it's a mad- few more tables. Yeah, or something. I mean, mm-hmm. it's madness how you come to a tournament, fly across wherever you're flying to, and you can't actually have a bit of practice to, before your game. It's crazy. And as you've gone to the trouble of making a list, I'll allow you to name one other thing as well then that you might change from that list. Well, from the list? I'll yeah. get the list back out two seconds. <laughs> it's, this isn't really a list of things I'd change, it's just things that I'm... Things that you've been put, thinking about. That I'm about. putting forward, yeah. Yeah. I've asked this question of a few people. Nobody came with a list. This is, uh, <laughs> this is a first I've been for the prepared podcast. for a few months. So, uh, probably what we've got here. Right. Right, that's a, this is a good one. It's near yeah. the bottom. This is actually a thing. This isn't just me moaning. Um, I would change the fact that when you get on the tour for the first time, 
whether it be now I haven't worked out the logistics completely but whether it be first round losers getting paid or whether you just get I think the more logical sense is get maybe five grand a season so just to cover all your expenses so whether you do it where first round you get 250 300 quid for losing or whether you do it where you got straight on the tour and they go right you're on the tour your first year there's five grand in your account off you go I think there was something a bit like that with the young players of distinction some years ago. So yeah. maybe a return for something like that. It would take like hardly anything off the prize money, top end, and it would really, really benefit the people lower down. Because, I'm sorry, if you've qualified and earned your right to be a professional, you shouldn't already be 10, 20 grand down before you've even hit a ball. Yeah, so that. Seems a long time since we called this the quickfire round. But there was one <laughs> more I wanted to throw at you, because it's very much in the news of late. The Newcastle United takeover. Oh, see, this is not going to be quick at all. Well, I, could, on, that's I, could, fine. I could speak for hours about this. I'm buzzing about it. Absolutely buzzing. Um, we never thought we'd see the day. It's been 15 years, pretty much, of absolute nonsense. And we've hung on well to still be, obviously, the team that we are and the club that we are. The only positives I will give Mike Ashley is, you know, he has held the club together reasonably well from a business point of view in his own head. You know, he's kept it together. He's run it as he wants to run it as a business. He's not, like, sort of lost loads of money or anything like that. But that's not what fans want, is it, Gary? They want someone who is going to lose money and invest in the team. We don't want to be in massive amounts of debt, obviously, but we want a bit of ambition and a bit of... You know, something to go out, a bit of hope. And eventually, after all these years, it's safe to say now, I think, that we've actually got prospects of that now. Back to going to a, to a day, hopefully, where we can, yeah, start buying players that are worthy of sort of, I'm sorry, worthy of a club of Newcastle's stature. Um, we are we have got a massive, massive fan base. We are a, We are a big club in that sense. And we'd just like to be at a point now where we can be back challenging up the top end of the league you know um, not necessarily winning the league not necessarily Champions League all the time but just good enough and ambitious enough and hopeful enough to be up there challenging for Europe spots you know and just being in amongst and there or thereabouts with the top six Moving on then to other things from your career Gary every player I think has one completely bonkers match in their life as a professional snooker player Mm. yours came against Chris Wakelin in the UK Championship. All right, yeah. You were 4-0 down, obviously not looking good, first to six. 67, 97, 134, 114, 100, 124. Got to be the best you've ever played, just in terms of pure quality. In them six frames, yeah, um, in a match. Best I've ever played in a, in, a, in a proper two-hour match over six frames, and one of them should have been a max as well. The 97 was actually a Mr. Black for a max. <laughs> Uh, so it should have been five centuries in a row and it should have been a max involved as well so mm. still, I was still taking the negatives from it <laughs> afterwards even yeah, though obviously yeah. yeah, first half of the game was just ridiculous the last half of the game was ridiculous in another way Let's talk about the British Open because that was obviously really good for you Strange tournament in a way in terms of how you progress through it You start off with three whitewashes mm. then you have three deciders yeah. And then that all leads you into the final against Mark Williams. 6-4 it finished, so what were your reflections on that? One that got away? Yeah, one that got away for absolute sure. Um, Mark was struggling like I was throughout the tournament. And I felt, I ha- not that I had him, but I felt, you know, if I turn up and play pretty much to what I can play, like, it's mine to lose. Um, Mark did step up his game massively in the final, which was obviously a shame for me, but... Again, great great champion and a great player. Um, you've kind of got to half expect that, especially in a final, and I did. 
But yeah, I, I just didn't perform quite to the levels that I would like, and uh, definitely one that got away. Gary Wilson came so close, but in the end, the champion of this resurrected British Open is Mark Williams. You've gone through the years of struggle, the seven years you were off the tour, all the work you've put in, and the struggles you've had the last couple of years just trying to keep your head together and everything. If at some point you did win a title, and you could always say that you were, for example, the former Welsh Open champion or the former UK champion or maybe even former world champion, would that in itself be enough for you to say, yes, it's all been worthwhile? Um I would never have said that years ago, but obviously time's ticking and I'm 36 now and my career's progressing. I still wouldn't like to say I would be happy with that, but I'd be a lot happier than I would have been 10 years ago. I'd, I'd, at least I'd say, look, I've won a tournament. That's my main ambition at the minute is to win a tournament. Um, anything else is secondary to that at the moment, even the money and stuff, like that's fine. I'm sort of, you know, I'm financially quite secure at the moment, so just my ambitions as a snooker player now, win a tournament. Um, yeah, if I if I retired, haven't done that. At least I've done something. Never mind all that though. I've saved the really big question for last. <laughs> Who was the most famous person you ever had in your taxi? Oh, um, I actually had. Now I can't even remember. I don't know if he's the most famous. Probably is. What was the guy called out with Def Leppard? Um, Joe Elliott. Yes, it might have been Joe Elliott, the blonde, long blonde. Yeah, there. yeah, the I'd, singer. Yeah, yeah, I had Joe Elliott out of Def Leppard. I, mean, I didn't even know who he was. He was just hanging about on a street corner as well. Right. And he says, can I get in? And really, I'm not supposed to do that as a private hire taxi driver. So Blue Line, if you're listening. Oh, so you're not meant to <laughs> pick not, up people you're, off no, the street? No, if you're private hire, no, you're, you're not supposed cover, to. Yeah, yeah, I've blown my cover now, but I, I don't give, give a monkey's now. Like, but, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I yeah. don't think you'll be looking for your licence back at nah, this stage. not no, really. No, no. So... Yeah, picked him up off the corner of the street. He said he wanted to go to Yarm, which is like a little town. It's where a lot of the footballers live, isn't it? Yeah, Middlesbrough Gary area. Pallister and people yeah, like that. Yeah, yeah. And um, I was like, all right. And as, as I say, I didn't know who he was, having a bit chat with him on the way, and slowly realised he was trying to like hint to us that he was a, a you know in, in a big band. Like, uh, oh, so he wanted you to know who he was. He, I got the impression he was kind of he was probably thinking, why after ten fifteen minutes has he not mentioned anything? As if he was vying for the attention. And he sort of kept hinting on, and eventually it came out, obviously, oh, yeah, I'm like the lead singer or whatever in Def Leppard. I went, oh, right, okay, yeah, yeah. And just had a bit chat on with him and stuff. And he goes, would you mind doing us a favour? He says, um, my Porsche's parked up round the corner near the train station. Would you mind, like, taking us there? And I says, have you been drinking the night, Joe? And he says, well, I've had a few, like, but don't worry about that. He says, do you just drop me near where my Porsche is, and if you wouldn't mind, just follow us back to the house, and then I'll pay you. I was like, all right, no, no problem then. So dropped him at the train station, got it, got in his little Porsche and uh, drove about, it must have been another five mile or something. Um, and I, at this point, I'm still thinking, I don't know whether to believe the guy, you know what I mean? Whether he is even this person or whether he's going to pay us or anything. Or whether he's fit to drive a car. Yeah, he, he was all right in the car and he pulls up to this big estate, basically, you know, the, like gates and he, his house is right there, and there's two women open the door waving and that. Like, I'm thinking, oh, my God, yeah, he's definitely telling the truth now. Like, he's, he's lock for the, the gate, he's putting the code in and that, and just opening up, and, yeah, he comes out. And you know what it is? I think the fare was only something like 65 quid, all in all, and he gave us 60... No, it was like 67, 68 pound, and he gave us 70 pound. That's not a great tip didn't, now, he, is didn't it, for the rock Nah, I thought... Come on, like you give us eighty quid or something, you know, something like that. But now you give us a couple of pounds, just rounded it up, and I thought, yeah, you know, it doesn't matter who you are. 
<laughs> Some people are just tight. <laughs> that's just the way it is. But yeah, Joe Elliott, Def Leppard, never forget it. Well, that's a great story to finish with, and hopefully you'll create a bit of hysteria by winning one of the big titles yourself one of these days. Gary, it's been wonderful to sit down and chat with you, and uh, thanks very much for joining us on the World Snooker Tour podcast. Yeah, thanks very much. Appreciate it. Join me again next time on the World Snooker Tour podcast for a very interesting chat with Simon Lichtenberg. He recently missed out on qualifying for the two ranking events being held in Germany this season, but is still very hopeful of getting the opportunity to perform for a home crowd sometime soon. Playing in Germany, the crowd is, is on your side and it's a very it's a very nice feeling. We, we don't normally have that often. So yeah, I'm really looking forward to that. Especially because I've played in, in Firth before and um, there were so many people just watching my match then and it's I really enjoy the occasions where I play in front of a big crowd so or on TV tables and I really like that. So I'm really looking forward to playing in Germany hopefully yeah so that and much more will be coming up next time on the World Snooker Tour podcast until then thanks so much for listening and goodbye